Welcome to the Redeemer Central podcast. Redeemer Central is a church community in Belfast seeking to practice the way of Jesus and work for the peace and good of our city. For more information, please visit RedeemerCentral.com. Part of the team here at at Redeemer, and it's my privilege to continue this series that we've been in, Liberated by Love, Encounters with Jesus in the Gospels. And Dave and I have been teaching into the encounters of regular people with Jesus. And I know for me personally, over the last number of weeks as we've dug into these, I've been falling in love with Jesus more because I've seen how he goes to the heart of the person and, and he responds and he liberates them. And his compassion and his kindness are the themes that I think I keep seeing again and again and again. And so this morning, I hope that you, as we expound this story in Luke chapter 8, I believe, of the sinful woman, um, that you will see that the point of the story is not justice or judgment, but is compassion and love and liberation and restoration. So that is where I hope we'll go this morning. I, um, I wanted to start with a quote from Sister Joan Chichitster, and it's in praise of women. <laughs> it is women who anointed him, women who proclaimed him, and women who prepared him from burial. It was women who Jesus put at the very center of the two mysteries of the faith, incarnation and resurrection. And I want to just, we can read this story and focus on this woman's sin. And I'm not sure that's the most helpful thing. And I want to remind all us women in the room that we were at the center of the story when it came to Jesus. We are the center of the story of redemption, of incarnation, of restoration. And you don't need to fight for your place or wonder about your place. It's almost boring now to hear that. We don't need to do it. We were right there from the beginning and we were the first to witness him at the tomb. So let's be at ease with that and engage with that and celebrate that. And I speak to myself as well. I want to uh, just start behind me with a quote from one of the other Benedictine monks who worked with Joan called Sister Mary Lou Kuwaki. She just died in January of this year at the age of 83. And she lived out her life in the Benedictine community in Pennsylvania. And they, as a group, engaged with, educated on, and spoke about active women's rights, spirituality, and how to live the religious life. And so they gave their life, Mary Lou gave her life's work. And this was her, this was her quote that I wanted to begin with. Engrave this upon your heart. There isn't anyone you cannot love once you hear their story. Engrave this upon your heart. There isn't anyone you can't love once you hear their story. 
And whenever she died in January, someone described her as the living integration of the active and the contemplative soul. And she described her favorite quote that she longed to live by. Oh, that my monk's robes were wide enough to embrace the whole world. That is how she wanted to live. Oh, that my robes were wide enough to embrace the whole world. And I wanted to begin with this quote and this lens that I think we can miss, that if we understand people's story, we cannot fail to love them. And if we live as a follower of Jesus and we look at their heart, we cannot fail to love them. And that is the beauty of this story. Very little else is worth paying attention to. So before we go into the story, I want to remind us of the wisdom of Peter Enns. Reading the Bible responsibly and respectfully today means learning what it meant for ancient Israelites to talk about God the way they did and not push alien expectations onto texts that were written long ago and far away. And I've said that before because I think it's really important when we read the Bible that we understand the culture and we understand the context and we understand the people who were listening because it's too easy to take a verse and just say it's exactly the same in 2023. That's not understanding the culture or the context or what was going on at that time. So it's very, very important. So I want to speak to some of the culture and the context of the things that are going to be picked out of this passage before I read it, because hopefully that will help us understand it better. So in the story of God, there was three women who anointed Jesus. They weren't all the same woman. So this is not three versions of the one story. There was Mary, who was in the home of Martha, and her brother Lazarus. That was one story. There was the Simon the leper. And this story in Luke chapter 8 was Simon the Pharisee. And some people have queried whether Simon the leper's that house was the same as Simon the Pharisee. But if we understand the context, we will know that a leper would never have become a Pharisee. It just wasn't an option. So these are three separate incidents where Jesus was anointed and people showed their love for him. Some say that some of the accounts are about him getting prepared for burial, which was another cult cultural behavior. The timing is that it was Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests, the backdrop is the chief priests are plotting to kill Jesus. They're plotting to sort him out and find a way to get rid of him because he's challenging everything they believed in. And so it's prior to his betrayal and his crucifixion was probably about two years later as far as we can work out. And it was probably in Capernaum. So the other accounts, in the other accounts in Matthew's gospel, Mary pours oil on him and the disciples get all agitated at the waste of money and Jesus teaches about that and about the poor. This account is about Simon getting upset that an unclean woman, a sinner, is touching Jesus and even worse to him, Jesus is speaking to her. Because in that culture, you did not, as a rabbi, speak to a woman in a public place. The Pharisees, if we think of um, Simon's story, by the age of 15, <laughs> a Pharisee would have known by heart the whole of the Old Testament and 300 prophecies. So this is someone who had immense knowledge of the law. Immense knowledge of the law. 
And that was by the age of 15. By the age of 12, they could have recited the whole of the Old Testament, and then they added 300 more prophecies. They were very, very educated young men. And Jesus, is a, at this point, is a young rabbi. So he was still open to correction. And I think that's some of the context of this story, that Simon is a very learned, very knowledgeable Pharisee. He's all over the law. And he's looking at Jesus, the young rabbi, and he thinks, I need to get you to my house because we have some things we need to sort out because you're not behaving as you should be. He's seen Jesus speak and teach and touch and do all sorts of things, and they're concerned, who is this man? Jesus said of the Pharisees in Matthew 15, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So Simon himself was a Pharisee, he's a religious elite. Perush was the name of his group. He lived separately and he lived under extreme Jewish laws. So he was getting very anxious, we can imagine, about Jesus dining with sinners. And he wanted, they would have expected the sinners to go to the temple and offer thanksgiving, not go straight to the one who was offering them a new life and a new way, which was what Jesus was doing at this time. He was trying to trap Jesus, perhaps, and check out, are you really a prophet? For women in that culture, rabbis never spoke directly to women in public. Women covered their hair, and they only let their hair down on their wedding night. That was the only time, the first time a man saw his wife's hair was on their wedding night. I read a quote from the president of Iran who, who stepped down in 2018. It is the obligation of the female to cover her head because woman hair extend, exudes vibrations that arouse, mislead, and corrupt men. And we kind of laugh at that, and I do laugh at that. But we could go down and spend the next hour looking at patriarchy, veiled misogyny, how women are kept, how women are blamed for men's sin. We could go down that road and we'd be here all day. But that is a road that is there, and we have to name it and own it and think about how we live under it. If we think about the alabaster sex workers, which this woman is supposed to be, lots of commentators query that. And it's very interesting, I think, to some of the commentators that when a sinful woman is named in biblical times, it's assumed it's sexual sin, but we don't know that. And there's a whole preach in there as well, but we're not going there today. But sex workers would have used their hair to invite business. They would have, it would have been a sensual act. It would have been an evocative act. And here was Jesus accepting it. Not rejecting her. Not humiliating her. Not shaming her. Showing her compassion and love and restoration. In those laws at the time, a woman who showed her hair outside of marriage or in a public place, her husband had the right to divorce her immediately and give her no cash. So it was a risky, risky thing this woman was doing when she saw the Lord and responded to him. The alabaster jar that is referenced was made, it's like a marble-like substance, and it was used to build Solomon's temple. It was always filled with perfume, very expensive. Usually a, a jar would have cost a year's wages. 
And when a woman was getting married, her family filled a jar to show their level of wealth to the, the prospective family. A sex worker would have used it a drop at a time in work. She would have used it to create a fragrance and to invite people to engage with her. This was risky stuff, and yet she took it. So if we think just now about what she did, she emptied it all. She's saying, that's over for me. If that was how I made my money, it's over. What a risky thing this woman did in front of those who judged her and held the law and could call her to account. Within Jewish culture, women, all sinners, had to show contrition of heart, confession of the lips, compensation for their sin, and determination to not sin again. Those were the four principles of repentance and redemption within this law. How on earth would someone who was a sex worker achieve that? How could she compensate for what had been done to her or what she'd done? It was an impossible situation. So it is firmly believed that this woman, when she came to Jesus in this story, it wasn't that she was coming and got forgiven. The generalized understanding of the text is that she had heard him, she had seen his works, she had experienced the love and repentance, and she was now going to talk to the guy. She wasn't going to the temple to atone for anything. She knew it was dealt with, and she wanted to go and see the guy, the man, who had freed her and liberated her. And so that is the context I want us to think about it in. Behind me will be a Bonhoeffer quote. Being swept into the messianic suffering of God and Christ happens in the most varied of ways in the New Testament, through the actions of a woman who was a sinner. And so in this story, this woman and her act is as much about a thankful, grateful heart, but also she's identifying with how Jesus is being humiliated in this story. Because there was rules for when you came to a house. You got your feet washed, your hands washed, you got a kiss on arrival, and you got finally set at the table when you were ready. So that is the context. So I now want to read the passage. I'm going to read it out of the Passion because it's a beautiful translation. It'll come up behind me. Afterward, so before we begin, just think of all those rules, think of all those contexts, and now listen to the story. Afterward, Simeon, a Jewish religious leader, asked Jesus to his home for dinner. Jesus accepted the invitation. When he went to Simeon's home, he took his place at the table. He walked straight in and took his place at the table. He didn't wait for all the things. Maybe they weren't offered to him. In the neighborhood, there was an immoral woman of the streets, known to all to be a prostitute. When she heard that Jesus was at Simeon's house, she took an exquisite flask made from alabaster, filled it with the most expensive perfume, went right into the home of the Jewish religious leader, and in front of all of the guests, she knelt at the feet of Jesus. Broken and weeping, she covered his feet with the tears that fell from her face. She kept cry crying and drying his feet with her long hair. Over and over, she kissed his feet. Then, as an act of worship, she opened her flask and anointed his feet with her costly perfume. 
When Simeon heard what was happening, he thought, this man can't be a true prophet. If he were really a prophet, he would know what kind of a sinful woman was touching him. Jesus said, Simeon, I have a word for you. Go ahead, teacher. I want to hear it. It's a story about two men who were deeply in debt. One owed the bank $100,000 and the other only owed $10,000. When it was obvious that neither of them would be able to repay their debts, the kind banker graciously wrote off the debts and forgave them all that they owed. Tell me, Simeon, which of the two debtors would be more thankful? Which one would love the banker most? Simeon answered, I suppose it would be the one with the greater debt forgiven. You're right, Jesus agreed. Then he spoke to Simeon about the woman still weeping at his feet. Do you see this woman kneeling here? She is doing for me what you didn't bother to do. When I entered your home as your guest, you didn't think about offering me water to wash the dust off my feet. Yet she came into your home and washed my feet with her many tears and then dried my feet with her hair. You didn't even welcome me into your home with the customary kiss of greeting, but the, from the moment I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You didn't take the time to anoint my head with fragrant oil, but she has anointed my head and feet with the finest perfume. She has been forgiven of all of her many sins. This is why she has shown me such extravagant love. But those who assume they have very little to be forgiven will love me very little. And then Jesus said to the woman at his feet, all your sins are forgiven. All the dinner guests said amongst themselves, who is this one who can even forgive sins? Then Jesus said to the woman, your faith in me has given you life. Now you may leave and walk in the ways of peace. Martin Luther King refers to those tears that this woman shed as heart water. You know those tears that come and there's no stopping them. And perhaps some of you are in a season where you're shedding heart water. For many reasons. Some of us shed heart water when we truly experience and understand the grace and the mercy of God. Some of us shed heart water when we're grieving when we're confused, when we're frightened, when we're angry. Many, many reasons. But this woman shed heart water out of a grateful, thankful heart. She was a forgiven woman and she knew what it felt like to be on the outside. She knew what it felt like to be rejected. She knew what it felt like to be judged. It would have been her daily lived experience. And somehow in this story, she connects with Jesus as they are trying to humiliate him. Simon and the Pharisees are trying to catch him out. They're trying to plot against him. They're trying to humiliate him. And something in her sees that and decides, I will do what they have not done. I will love you and serve you and pour out my life for you. Because that is what you deserve. So Simon is trying to humiliate Jesus, to correct him, to point out his errors. And what does Jesus do? He lets the woman touch him. He crosses gender boundaries. He confirms her. He defends her. And he carries her, carves out space for her. Her love for him and her love helped her to identify with him. And it came from a thankful, grateful heart. When he tells the parable about the debts, 
He talks about how the creditor at the beginning is God. And by the end of the parable, he's identifying himself as the creditor. So this is Jesus saying to the Pharisees, you're all about the, the God and the rules and the legislation. I have come to fulfill that and I offer a new way. So by the end of the parable, he has set himself exactly where he was supposed to be. He was the father's life and work on earth, bringing new life and freedom and liberation. Jesus takes this recognized symbol for God and transforms it into a symbol of himself. And he's telling them exactly who he is. He's the fulfillment of the law and all that was prophesied. And the very fancy word for that is hermeneutical Christology. Hermeneutical Christology. And so, I could have gone down many roads with this, this passage. I could have said, as, as we said, we could have talked about the role of women and how Jesus had liberated her. We could talk about the judgmental Pharisees and the arrogance of them and the law. We could have talked about her repentance. We could have talked about many things. But I wonder is the beauty of this story in thinking about the idea of knowledge versus intimacy. Knowledge of the law, knowledge of God, knowledge of the ways of God versus intimacy with God. So yes, she did an intimate act, but actually what she did was she allowed her vulnerability to connect with the Lord. And in doing that, she did something utterly transformative. So I wonder where you are in the story. Do you sit more on the line of knowledge? Or do you sit more on the line of intimacy? And one without the other is risky. And how are you spending time on a daily basis Embracing the Lord, spending time with him, getting to know him. And then out of that intimacy, you serve him and you follow him. That, I believe, is the challenge of the story. And we could also go down that whole idea that those who have been forgiven much can love much. And so I never really did very much, so I can't really love very much. It's an almost ridiculous idea. And I was thinking about that idea and thinking about... We were actually talking about Portrush Town Hall when we were teenagers this morning for some random reason. But Stephen and I were both raised up in um, very godly homes and we went to church all the time. And even when we were on holiday in caravans and summer houses on the north coast, we still went on a Sunday night to Portrush Town Hall and there was big plush velvet seats and it was all lovely. But they would wheel out person after person who would have, you know... He was a drug dealer. He lived on the streets for 10 years. He da, 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 da. This was a, and there were just shocking stories. And there was a little part of me at sort of 14, 15, 16 thinking, I'm quite dull. I've never, you know, <laughs> I, I don't have that kind of story. I can't tell that sort of tale, which is good. But it's also, I get into this sort of idea that somehow you've got to have a dramatic story. And then I thought about the Me Too campaign that started after a brave woman said enough and started to tell her story and brought down Harvey Weinstein. And there was another woman at the age of 31, her quote will come up behind me, Rachel Den Hollander. At the age of 31 as a lawyer, 
she decided to tell her story of what had happened to her at the hands of Larry Nazar, who was her coach when she was a gymnast. And when she told her story, hundreds of other women and girls told their story. But this is the point. This is so beautiful. And you can hear her say these words. It's on YouTube. So she went to court when he was convicted of hundreds of atrocities against girls and women. And she said, should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you have done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. Because it extends grace and mercy and hope where none should be found. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and forgiveness from God, which you need far more than from me, though I extend you that as well. So this woman who had had so much wrong done to her and so much horror had happened to her, so she wasn't, if you like, the sinner. She had been wronged. But by experiencing the grace and the mercy of Jesus, she was able to offer him, her abuser, forgiveness and hope that he would find the way to live whole. And so let's not think of ourselves as anything other than broken, vulnerable people in the hands of a loving God. That you don't need to think, have I, be, have I been forgiven much, therefore I love much. I am utterly convinced that when we spend our focus on intimacy with the Father, we will live out of a place of thankfulness and gratitude, no matter what we have done. Because that is where grace and mercy is found. And so I wonder, just as we think about applying this, I wonder, could I ask you to consider... Is my faith and the outworking of it based on knowledge or is it based on intimacy? And there has to be a blend. But the intimacy is the one where your heart will connect with the heart of Jesus and out of that will come gratitude and thankfulness for the other. And I take us back to that first quote at the very beginning where she's saying you can't fail to love someone if you know their story. And so if, I, if we know our own stories and are at peace with who we are and where we've been and the grace that we have found, we can offer that to others. And in doing that, we cannot fail to love others. And that perhaps is our challenge. Who do you sit and think about in a way that perhaps is more like the Pharisees? That perhaps is more about the right and the wrong? And perhaps if you could move a little bit along the journey of grace of knowing about the grace that you've received, you may be able to offer something very different to a broken, vulnerable person who is just like you. I want to end with Sarah Bessie, who I value greatly in my life. Sometimes we turn over tables in the temple and other times we invite conversations and start with an apology. And I wanted to think about the Pharisee Simon, the knowledge guy, the judge guy, the arrogant guy. And I want to think about the woman and think, maybe if we'd started a conversation, there would be no need. The story would have gone a very different way. Maybe if I think about someone who is so different to me and we start with apology and conversation, we don't always need to turn the tables over. 
sometimes, and I'm thinking about next Sunday night in Lesser Heard, maybe when we start to listen to the other, we can find our connections, find the God in one another, and together move forward. I think this, this story is less about the many things that we can pull out of it and perhaps more about knowledge versus intimacy. And the invitation today, as it is every day, is that we spend time with the Father, become more like the rabbi, and do as the rabbi does. So just now, as we come to an end, and I invite the band, we're going to come and have communion. And how we do it here, if you're new, is that you come forward, there's gluten-free bread here, and um, would you too, Philip and Johnny, would you serve the wine and the juice? I always just, whoever catches my eye, we don't prep here, we just roll with it and that's okay. Others do, but yeah. Johnny sir, and Philip? Yep. Yep. So you can do this and you will serve the wine. People, come and take your bread and one of these guys you can choose. The, blood, the body of Christ and the blood of Christ that is broken and shed for you. So as we worship, take your time, come together with friends, come in community and come and sample of the grace that is here for you.